0: Thank you for checking out the Life Church Utah podcast. We hope it's a blessing to you. If you'd like to give to Life Church, you can do so by texting the word LCGIVE to 43506. And now, a message from one of our pastors. The danger of familiarity I'm like, I'm well what danger is there in familiarity eric it's just, just familiar there's all sorts of things that are familiar but isn't it true that there seems to be a principle in life that we as humans deal with that when things become familiar they start to become ordinary and once they become ordinary it's just kind of common and you don't really seem to give those things that are familiar and ordinary the uh right evaluation of value as we should that, would they, that we don't see them as truly valuable anymore because they've become ordinary and common. Uh, well, let me give some examples. Let's, let's look at some examples together to see if that's true. Uh, our family, all right? Some of us, we just spent some time with our families over the Christmas holiday. And isn't it true, though, the people that we're supposed to love the most... Oftentimes are the people that we treat the worst, right? Isn't that true? That happens sometimes. And you can like, you can go off the handle. Um, of course not. Let's do that. Of course. But like you can go off the handles, you know, um, with like your family way more than you could with just anybody else because why? You're familiar. They're ordinary. You know them. They know you. That's why we do that, right? You start to treat them not according to their true value. Uh, maybe your friends. Maybe you had a best friend at one point, you were close, you were clicking, you would spend a lot of time, you'd talk to each other, you'd make time to hang out or to do things together, right? You'd do that. But what happened after a while? Your relationship became familiar and you started to not pursue that person or pursue that friendship in the same way that you did before because it was just familiar and ordinary. Um, so how about some of us with our cars or with our house right? We do that sometimes when you first got that car maybe it wasn 't new um, brand new but it was new to you right and uh uh you 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 babied it, you waxed it, you vacuumed it out, it was all nice and clean. Somebody gets in, they spill a little bit of coffee, and you flip out. You're like, hey, what are you doing? Put in the cup holder. Drink, Actually, you know what? Drink that, and then you can get in the car, right? And you're, you're parking in the back of the parking lot. Somebody crosses over, it gets a little bit too close to the line. You're like, what is going on? This person doesn't know how to drive. You know, um, and you're washing it every other day. I mean, you were careful with it, but after a couple of years, maybe a year, Two, you start to become familiar, and it's got a scratch here, scratch there, and now you're just like, ah, who cares, you know? And then people get in, they're like, is there a floor beneath all these cups somewhere? You know, it's like gross. Or your house, you know, people. It used to be you got that house, you you first moved in, people walk in, you're like, take your shoes off. What are you doing? No, 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 take your shoes off. Um, We eat in the kitchen. We don't eat in here in the living room. We don't eat over the carpet. Why would you do that? Why would you even think about that? But then a couple years pass, right? You're in the living room eating spaghetti, drop that meatball, uh, no big deal, <laughs> I'll get it later, oh well, you know, you just go about your day, well, maybe maybe it's not that bad, but maybe that's just me, I don't know, you spill the meatball, it's like, ah, no big deal, um, but it becomes familiar, ordinary, and we start to treat it as such, and common, you Now here, check this one out, isn't it true that we, some of us, maybe we've been around church for a while, we start to do the same thing with the things of God, don't we? start to treat the things of god as ordinary and common at one point it was special you pursued it was it was uh, there was something unique about it but then it became familiar and ordinary and now we just go through the motions a lot of times with our approach to the things of god we come in and we go oh it's Eric preaching today, I guess I can kind of check out maybe. Or it's like, oh man, those songs aren't new. I want, the, I want the newest songs. Or maybe you're like, no, I want older songs. We do too much new stuff. Or maybe I don't like this event or that program or the way we do things here at this church. Or, or you know, I'm not a big fan of this or that. And you, can, you can, we can all find our things and you can start to nitpick and do all of that. And that's totally fine. But we use that, right? We use that as a tool to say that that's the reason I'm not encountering God. If only they do things maybe a little bit different Then I'd encounter God. But here's what I want to talk to you about. Maybe it has less to do with a program or the way we do things. Maybe it has more to do with our approach to the things of God. Maybe it has more to do with our perspective, the way we even come in the door, the way we even, before anything happens, the way we approach the things of God, maybe it has more to do with that. Because, I mean, think about it. Is one's experience with God really dependent? Is it really dependent upon a style of a communicator? Is it really dependent upon how relevant the music is, as long as it's God honoring? Right? And I'm not trying to make excuses for bad music and bad preachers. I'm just trying to say... Is it really dependent upon that? Is it really dependent upon, like, the way this program works as opposed to another one? Or does it really have more to do with whether or not we approach the things of God from a position of judgment and going, Mmm, impress, impress me. Come on, preacher man. Do your job. Let's see if you're good. Or come on, music. I'm not going to worship unless the music's good. Or, uh, or I'm not going to, you know, do participate in that event because I didn't like the way it went last year or whatever it is. Maybe we approach things from a seat of judgment rather than from a seat of faith. And that makes all the difference. Let's, let's look at some scripture together. Here in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30. And here's what I hope that we'll be able to see. I hope that we're able to see and explore together in this passage um, how we might not be like the people of Nazareth. That we might be able to approach the things of God uh, from uh, a from a place of faith rather than judgment. So like I said, Luke chapter four, verses 14 through 30, and it's a little bit of a story, but this is what I love about the gospels and the narrative. You can picture it. You can see the, the, the uh, events taking place in your mind and, and you can really relate to it. I think that it, it's really just wonderful. So try to do that as we read through it, visualize this happening. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Sounds like a pretty great start to ministry to me. When he came to the village of Nazareth, which was his boyhood home, he went went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. It's quite the claim. Um, if you know anything about like conversations about uh, the historicity of who Jesus was and that sort of thing, a lot of people might say oh jesus didn 't really know what he was claiming. He never uh, explicitly made claims about himself as being sent from God or being god being 's son. This is one of these uh, places where you don 't get to say that he 's made explicit claim he 's either uh, you can 't just say he 's a good teacher if this isn 't true because this would make him a liar if this isn 't true. He really is wh- who he said he was or he 's not. And we believe that he is who he said he was. And so he makes quite the claim that this scripture was about him. He rolls up the scroll, um, handed it back to the attendant. Excuse me if I've lost my place. Where are we at here? He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently and he began to speak to them. The scripture you've heard this very day has been fulfilled. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Remember that part? That's kind of a key phrase. Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. Now, this is the NLT translation. Another translation says, do the miracles we heard that you did in Capernaum. Not that you did do, that we heard you did, which I think um, demonstrates the heart of these people a little bit more clearly. Certainly there certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe fa- famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sentenced to... Instead, to a foreigner, a widow, Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. And they intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Can you imagine what that might have looked like? I don't know what Jesus did, but something miraculous and wonderful took place. We're not going to have time to talk about that and explore it. What we will do is try to break this up into three different sections, three different sections today that hopefully will inform us about our approach to God, that hopefully as we leave from this message today, we'll approach the things of God in a little bit different manner. So the first section, first section, verses 18 through 19 says this, the the who and the what That's what I'll entitle that section, the who and the what. Who did Jesus come for and what did he come to do for them? And he tells us clearly as he gets that that scroll of Isaiah and he says that this scripture is about me. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, what is it that was fulfilled? What was fulfilled was that he says that I've been anointed. The Holy Spirit is upon me and I've been anointed to do what for who? To preach good news to the poor which is to say that he came for those who need great provision of something, provision that they weren't going to be able to do on their own. This is who he came for, to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, what else did he come to say? To bring freedom to the prisoner. To say that, this, that, that there are those who are in need of a debt being released over them. That they're in debt in some way and I'm going to bring freedom from that debt to them. Maybe a message that he says is about him, he goes, is sight for the blind. Maybe not just physical blindness, but people who spiritually need to see things as they really are. That I need someone to intervene, otherwise I'm not going to see things as they are. And the fourth one is to bring release to the oppressed meaning that there are those who need a weight carried for them. Now, what's interesting about all of these is what they they all have in common. They all have in common that they are in great need and that that need is not going to be fulfilled by them working or trying harder. They need someone to come and do something for them. They're in great need of someone doing something. And this is the experience of all of us, if we think about it, if we're honest Do we not live in a broken world? Do we not all experience things in ourselves, even that things aren't as they should be, that we're not as we should be? I mean, I'd like to say that I have it all together, but I know my own heart and you know yours, right? We're broken. Something's messed up in there. And so here's the experience that we all have living in this world, and it bears its weight upon us, giving us the experience of being poor, even if you're rich. That we are given the experience of being poor, even if you're rich. Of being a prisoner, even if you've never been to jail. Of being blind, even if you have 20-20 vision. Of being oppressed, even if you have every reason in the world to be happy. Isn't this true? Isn't this our experience? And this is the experience of a broken world. And this is who Jesus came for, with, were these people. And here's where we go next is that we'll either acknowledge our position there or we won't we'll either acknowledge our position and going that, yes, this is my position. This is where I, I need someone to intervene and, and to do something for me that I couldn't do on my own. I'm spiritually blind. I'm oppressed. I'm a prisoner, even though I've never been to jail, I've, I've experienced that. But isn't it also true that freedom sight means nothing. If you think you have sight, It means nothing if you think that you're free already. It means nothing to you if you don't think that you're oppressed at all. It means nothing if you don't think you're poor already. So Jesus didn't come for everyone. He came for those who are poor, oppressed, prisoner. You're like, well, Eric, that's not me. Yes, it is. It's all of us. But you'll recognize your position there or not. So what's some application here? What's some application that we can take home from this? From this section. Christianity will only be useful to you if you recognize your position there. It will only be useful to you. You you will only find what you are looking for. You only get in right relationship with God if you acknowledge your position of great need. As long as you are trying to achieve on your own and going, I will work, I can do it. I'll I'll be superior to others and, and then God will be pleased somehow. No, on your worst day, what makes you think that you can measure up? Or on your best day, what makes you think that you can measure up to God's holy standard, right? So we need someone to intervene, but it will only be useful to you when you finally come to acknowledge your position there. I was reminded of a, another spot in the scriptures in Luke chapter 16. Where Jesus tells us this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And so you have, I'll just kind of try to skinny up the story for you. But you have this rich man, Lazarus, Lazarus, who's um, clearly a Jew, God's chosen people. And then you have outside the gate, this poor man who's so poor that um, he, he's kind of been stationed there, obviously. He can't, you know, make uh, any Uh, He can't provide for himself in any way, so he's hoping for scraps or people to drop things by. But that's not the point. The point is this, is that they both pass away. And then uh, the poor man goes to Abraham's side, which is uh, a way of saying that he's gone to heaven. And then uh, the rich man goes to hell. Now, then you get this figurative conversation between uh, Abraham and the rich man. And the rich man, it's interesting, doesn't ask to get out of hell. If you're ever wondering, man, people who go to hell, are they going to be, um, surely once they're there, they won't want to be there. No, I don't think that's the case at all. Actually, the rich man never asked to get out. He only asks for relief from the pain and for Lazarus, the guy who used to sit outside his gate to do something about it. And so what do we see here? What do we see is that the rich man thought that he was, because he was rich, he, that he was spiritually rich, but the poor man, because he was poor, knew he was spiritually poor. And then once they enter into eternity, we see the different experiences of them both. And the poor man who knew he was poor spiritually is the one who makes it to heaven. This is my point to you. The people who make it are the people who recognize their need for a savior to intervene, that I'm poor and broken, and I'm not going to make it on my own. Any amount of religious works or giving money or attending church is not going to make me right with God. I need Jesus to stand in my place for me. And this is what what Jesus is demonstrating for them. All right, so what's the next, the next spot here? This next section is how the, how the people of Nazareth missed it. How the people of Nazareth missed it. See, he came to reveal himself. He shows them, but then they reveal to Jesus what sort of person they are, whether or not they were the people who recognized their need or if they were the people who thought they had no need for him. See, they spoke well of him. They were amazed at his words. They were, wow, you're blowing us away. Wow, quite the communicator. But then they say this, but then they say, isn't, isn't that Joseph's son? Yeah, we know who you are. We know your dad. We know your brothers. We watched you grow up. What do you think you're doing, man? What do you think you're doing coming in here and telling us the scripture has been fulfilled by you? Oh, you might be a good, communi- good communicator, but really? Really? You know, you think that that's, that's everything. They've approached Jesus from a place of judgment rather than from a place of faith. And here's what this means to me. Here's why I think this is important to, for us is... That means that it doesn't matter how eloquent a preacher you get. You can get the most eloquent. I mean, can you think of a better communicator than God himself? Right? We just celebrated that that's what Christmas means, that God becomes a man. He's entered into creation and he reveals himself in the person of Jesus and then he's right in front of his own people. He's right in front of the Jews, God's chosen people. They were looking forward to the Messiah, right? And now he's right in front of them and he said, today is the day you've been looking forward to. And he tells them Who he came for, and they missed it. Why? The familiar, ordinary, he's common they already had their minds made up. They've already approached him from a place of judgment rather than from a place of faith. So that tells me that even us, I mean God himself was communicating to them. So you can get the best preacher, you want the best teacher, the best programs, the best church, but if you approach it from a place of judgment as common and ordinary and you come in and you sit back and you go, "Okay, impress me." All right, let's see if you let's see if any let's see if this church is any good. You've already missed it. You're not going to get anything out of it because you've Already approached from a place of judgment rather than from a place of faith. I think Mark chapter 4 makes it, uh, or Mark chapter 6 verse 5 even makes it the point even clearer. It's the parallel passage to this one. And Mark adds this in there. He says that while Jesus was in Nazareth, he couldn't do very many miracles. He couldn't. Not that he didn't want to. He couldn't. Here's what I. oh man, this is so, this is so good for us. Sometimes when we leave and we go, man, I didn't hear anything today. It just kind of seemed like Pastor Rich was just, all I heard was blah, 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 or Eric's talking, all I heard was blah, 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 or I'm standing there and I'm trying to sing and it just kind of seems like, uh, like it's just boring, nothing's happening, you know, and we just kind of go through the motions. Maybe, maybe, I'm not trying to, again, make excuses for bad preaching, bad music or anything like that or bad events. I'm just saying maybe we, maybe it wasn't the preacher's fault. Maybe it wasn't the worship team's fault. Maybe it was our fault. Because we had already come in going, impress me. And, they, and like the Nazarenes, <laughs> like the people of Nazareth, they missed it and we will too. We will too if we approach God in that sort of way. Um, things get really interesting in verse 23. Jesus wants to show them what they're doing. So he cites to them a common proverb. One, they probably would have known, the origin we don't know, but the point is this is that um, they were asking for proof. All right, if this is true, then, then prove it. Let's see, let's see if that's really true about you. But Jesus doesn't provide it. Like Mark said, he couldn't do any miracles there. Why not just give them the proof? Why not just give him the proof? A lot of times when I'm talking to young people, they, they say something like, well, why doesn't God just write it in the sky for me? Here, I'm here, and I want a relationship with you. Why, why doesn't he just make it more clear? And he did. He, he, he did it in the person of Jesus. How much clearer could it be that God enters into creation in the person of Jesus? But here's also another thing to take account of, is that God is not um, interested in performing party tricks that will impress people, but leave them unchanged spiritually. He's not impressed in in, in indulging your self-centeredness because you don't break self-centeredness by indulging it and going, okay, I'll just perform and see if that changes their mind. No, it won't change anybody's mind. It won't change their mind. It'll only make them impressed for a moment, but then they will leave unchanged. And that's not what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in changing their hearts. He's interested in making them new, born again, and, and, and making people, um, and making right what they were made for, which is to be in right relationship with God, right? This is what he's all about. See, their familiarity was a pathway for them to express their pride and arrogance. And it's not that this always happens. It's just that it's much easier for it to happen. Because anytime we become familiar and something becomes ordinary and common, it's also easier for us to feel superior to that person. So if you become, um, if you're, Uh, Spouse or whoever it is just becomes common and ordinary to you, it's so much easier than to feel superior to that person. I'm not saying that's always the case, but this was a pathway for them to express their pride. And that's why Jesus says no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I'm not going to do the miracles to just change your mind because it's not going to change your mind. It will just leave you unchanged. He quotes to them saying, do... What we've heard that you did in Capernaum. See, they already have made up their minds. Before he's done anything, okay, do, do, do what we heard you did, not what you did do. That might have made all the difference if they're going, yeah, we know that he's done miracles in Capernaum, and so we want those same miracles here. We want to see the, him do the same in us. But no, they're going, let's see. Do what we've heard you do, did. Now, here's some application. Here's some application for us. Jesus, or God will only be obligated to do more miracles only if it would lead more people to, to personal relationship with himself. But we see in the life of, of Jesus and in his ministry that that's just not the case. That there were all sorts of people who saw him do the miraculous and do the wonderful and heard his teaching and preaching. But then they go, oh, this is too hard. And they walked away from him. And if that's going to happen to Jesus, of course it will happen here. And so we can't say God is obligated to do the miraculous for me. He would only do that if, if, if it were going to bring about faith in people. And we saw from his ministry that just mere miracles doesn't. That's not what changes someone's heart. And how often do we maybe approach the things of God in this way? People say, well, how was the worship today? And, uh, uh, and that's okay and fine to say. I think I've said these phrases myself, which is why I wrote them down. I've said them too. Um, how was the worship today? The question isn't how was the worship. The question is, did you worship today? Right? Not whether or not mm, was it good enough for me to worship. It's did you. How was the word? How was the preaching today? I've said that very same phrase myself. But the question isn't how was the preaching. It was, did you get everything you could? Were you hungry as you could? could to get everything out of god's word when it was presented to you that's the question right we hear things about like an uh an encounter service and we go oh man i hate those things oh, they're so terrible, they're boring, or whatever. Oh, man, we're just gonna come together and we're gonna pray? Pfft, I, ain't got, I ain't got time for that. But you see, you've already made up your mind. You've already approached the things of God with a, from a position of judgment rather than from a position of faith. And so even if I do twist your arm into coming, that wouldn't do you any good because you're gonna be here and you're gonna miss out on everything anyway. And I'm not just saying you, this is for me too. Actually, I was sitting here during uh, worship in the first service and actually during here before second service, uh, during worship, we're all praising and God together. And I, what, while, while you guys are singing the songs, I'm sitting here going, God, please help me. Don't let me screw this up. Please help me, help me, help me, help me. You know, uh, you know I, I don't get to do this as often as ever, but as, as Pastor Rich. And so I'm a little, I, I get a little nervous, get the butterflies and that sort of thing. And I'm going, God, I just want your words to be communicated, not mine. You, you do your thing. And it was like, God stopped me in a moment. And he goes, Eric, don't you forget this moment. Don't you forget this moment because this, this is, that's what, that's the place I always need to be is right there going, God, I need you every time. Every time I go to work, every time I uh, go to minister to anyone or do anything, I I always need to be in a position of going, God, I need your help. I am desperate neediness left to myself. I need your Holy Spirit to be at work. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. See, that's where we always need to say, but what happens? Myself included, preachers and teachers that we do this all the time, we get familiar get used to it we get we start to get in a groove and we're like man I'm all right at this communicating in front of people thing and I don't need God's help anymore of course we don't say that out loud but we demonstrate it by our lack of approach and and neediness before God or maybe it's like um and this one I'm not trying to be below the belt if you came in late today okay but like if it's like common for you like to come in late to the things of God all the time and you're like moseying in going like 15 minutes late and worship is done and you're like, man, I don't feel like i got anything out of this service. Well, yeah. Would you do that in your job? Would you show up 15 minutes late every day? Why does good God deserve less than your job? Of course he deserves more. We should be coming in. And, and again, I've been late to all sorts of things all the time. I'm not throwing shade at you or anything. I'm just trying to say, you know, let's, Let's have an intentionality on our part rather than just going, this is ordinary and familiar. And I'm telling you, when we do that, that's when God responds, not when we come in going, "Mm, impress me, okay? All right, well, what's the last part? The last part is this. Uh, The result, verses 25 through 27. What was the result? Jesus illustrates with an example. Two examples, actually. Uh, Verse 27 is the second example. Um, And he quotes to these chosen people, God's people, right? He quotes to them their own scriptures and he points to two great prophets, probably no two greater prophets that he could have pointed to, and Elisha, excuse me, Elijah and Elisha. And what does he say about them? Um, Elijah was sent not to any of the widows during the three and a half year famine, uh, not sent to any of the widows in God's chosen people, Israel, no, he was sent to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. Who is that? A foreigner, someone outside God's chosen people. That's who he was sent to. And then the second example was from Elisha. And who was Elisha sent to? There were plenty of people who had leprosy within, the, the, uh, within Israel, within God's chosen people. Sure, that he could have gone to, but who was he sent to? He was sent to Naaman, a foreigner, a non-Jew. And this is what makes them so furious. Isn't it ironic that he quotes them, their scriptures about them, and they get mad about it? It's kind of interesting to think about. Um, but the... the, the the point that he's trying to say here, the point and the reason they got so mad is that as one commentator says, is that Jesus means to answer their unbelief with a threat of departure to other people who would be more responsive. He th- He's not threatening anything. He's just telling him, this is a warning to you. Your own history should be a warning to you of what it means to dismiss the things of God. Because when you do that, God's going to go to someone who's more responsive. Do you think he's just gonna keep playing your game and hoping to impress you enough to where you finally go, okay, I guess I'll respond. No, that's not how it works. Think God can be manipulated? He's God. Think you can sit here and play the game with him and go, okay, let's see if you come through and, and stand in judgment on God himself? No, that's not how it works. And so he says, if that's how you're going to approach the things of God, God's going to go to people who will be more responsive. Man, what a stern, but such helpful warning to us, because I don't ever want to be the person who gets so familiar with the things of God that I just begin to go through the motions. And then before I know it, I'm wondering where God's at. And he's going, it was your bad. (laughs) I left to go to someone else that was more responsive because you were just playing a game. You were just treating me as common and ordinary rather than something special and spectacular. What is some application on this point? I think that we could say this, that the more familiar and ordinary someone comes to us, uh, becomes to us, and God for that matter, the more familiar and ordinary he becomes, the more likely one is to miss out on what he's up to. I think that that could be true. And so I'll go invite the worship team out at this point as we begin to close. The second point of application I think that we can draw from this is that truth has, can either have a hardening effect on us or a softening effect on us. You may have, maybe you've seen this illustration before, but you could take two elements like clay and butter, and they're both when they're cool are kind of you know, um, somewhat pliable, but not really. But as soon as you apply heat, Instantly, they have two different responses to the same to the same heat, two different responses to the same heat. and the same is true for us that we can have two different responses to the same truth. That when it's presented to us, you can either become hard like clay, that when it, it, when the sun hits, it becomes cracks and it breaks apart, or you be, can become like butter, which is, becomes more pliable and movable, and, and it goes where it's supposed to and does what it's supposed to do. You can either You can have one of those two responses. Which one will you be? The people of Nazareth had a response of hardness so what did jesus do he goes and he preaches to the gentiles and tons of people who recognize their neediness respond to him and come to follow him and come to know him tons of other people who grow hard only wanted they wanted nothing to do with jesus once they became hard to the truth you have these two sides so which one are you you're like well eric how do i know how do i know which I think one good picture, uh, this isn't the only picture, but one good picture to demonstrate whether or not you're the clay or the butter is to ask yourself this question, when repentance is needed on your part, that is to say that you need to turn from something that is displeasing to God. Maybe, there you need, maybe there's something you do need to do. There's the sin of commission and omission. Maybe there's things that you need to stop doing. Maybe there's things that you need to start doing. But the point is you need to turn and you say, okay, I'm not going to do this thing that is not honoring to the God that I say I worship and love. And so I'm going to turn from that and turn to him. Now, when, when that happens, when that happens in your life, do you feel closer to God? Do you feel further from God? Do you feel closer to him and warmer to him and overwhelmed with with thankfulness and gratitude in your heart going, oh my God, I can't believe that you would love me. I can't believe that you saved me. I can't believe I still, oh, it's actually a lovely sort of feeling, actually. You know, repentance. You're like, Eric, really? It's a lovely sort? It should be. If you understand the grace of God, it should be to us. Otherwise, you're still trying to earn your salvation which you will never get and you will go in this endless circle of trying to earn, trying to earn. You'll start to feel good about yourself for a little while and then you'll fail and you'll beat yourself up and you'll feel crushed because you were trying to earn it in the first place. And and what religion does to everyone, religion always makes you feel superior to other people and so eventually you might start to feel like you can look down on other people but that's not what the gospel does to people. The gospel always... Always overwhelms you with gratitude and grace. So, which one are you? We pray that today's message is a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.